Colossians chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 983. I've entitled today's message, The Christian Ministry Final Part. So we have been considering the nature of the ministry for a number of weeks, uh, beginning with Colossians 1 verse 24. Now we're finally coming to the end of this section of the book. So allow me to pray as we get started here, and then we'll consider our text. Lord, we do thank you so much for a Sunday morning to gather as a church family. Lord, I thank you for everyone who is here, for everyone who is watching from home or even overseas today. Lord, pray that you would help us to devote all of our energies now to understanding this portion of your word. Might it give us an accurate view of what the Christian ministry is is all about. Um, Use it to convict me, Lord, about what my priorities as a pastor ought to be. Pray that you would help each member of this church as they uh, go about the work of ministry here. That you would give them joy in their work, seeing that it is so important Help them to see how their work can glorify you, Lord, and and use this passage to shape how they serve others, too. Lord, our lives are in your hands. This church is in your hands. Use it for your honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have come now to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where the Apostle Paul concludes his thoughts about the Christian ministry. And two key concepts arise from this passage. Number one, we see that Christian ministry is a labor of love. Number two, Christian ministry seeks the good of God's people. We're going to consider each of these points in turn this morning, beginning with the first, that Christian ministry is a labor of love. And let's start with the labor side of that. So notice Paul's words in the first verse. He writes, for I want you to know, this is the uh, Christians in Colossae, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Okay, so the Apostle Paul here describes his ministry as a struggle. Now, the Greek word underlying this translation is pronounced agon. It's, It's actually where we get our English word agony from. The word is also used in Hebrews 12.1 to describe the exertions of a runner in a race. It's used in 1 Thessalonians 2.2, where it's translated suffering. And in the King James Version, it's sometimes translated as conflict. But I think the word agonize would be accurate here. The Apostle Paul really did agonize as he ministered to the churches of Christ. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul describes his agonies. Listen listen to his words here. He writes, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys... 
in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he adds this, and apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So Paul really did agonize in the work of the ministry. I mean, physically, his, his body was, was beaten, and psychologically, he had this anxiety for all the people that he served. Christian ministry is a real labor. Why do all these troubles come to people engaged in Christian ministry? Well, it's because the ministry is about dealing with human souls. Human souls that God created, which bear His image, but which are now estranged from Him because of sin. And oftentimes, human beings do not want to hear about the gospel of Christ. And so, when it comes to their ears, they respond in anger and in hostility, and this creates toil for the minister as he tries to penetrate those emotional barriers and then also endure the physical persecutions that come with it. The minister is a human soul himself, too. That means he's subject to all of the normal infirmities of a human being. He gets tired and discouraged in the ministry, and there are times when his body aches and he finds it difficult to go on. You know, the scriptures also teach us that in Christian ministry, we're dealing with more than just people conflicts, too. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. In other words, there are, in addition to the human souls and the conflicts that are generated by them, but there's also this conflict with unseen spiritual forces. Those who would not see the kingdom of God advancing in the world. And so they will do all that is in their power to hinder the, the minister of God. There are many things that come together in Christian ministry which causes the work to be very toilsome. And yet, as stated earlier, it is also a labor of love. The minister does this work because he loves his people. In fact, we've been in the book of Colossians for a number of weeks now, and we have already seen the, the very personal nature of this letter. And Paul deeply loved the the Christians in Colossae that he was writing to. As we continue through this letter, we're going to see this very affectionate language come through again and again. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Paul even says this to the Christians he writes to. He says, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. Isn't that just a remarkable passage? The Apostle Paul 
compares his relationship to the Christians he's writing to to that of a nursing mother who's taking care of a newborn. Now, I can't think of any more loving relationship than that. A mother's relationship with her love for her newborn baby is the strongest of all loves. And Paul says, that's what I feel like, like a nursing mother. And I feel like you are my children, and I want to nourish you and to to care for you as a good parent would. See, there is no professional detachment in Christian ministry. No, no emotional distance maintained between the Christian leader and the church members. We find that sometimes in, in other professions, right? In, in law school, for example, or in medical school, and in... Um, psychiatry uh, training, they always tell the person, maintain that professional distance, right? You've got to make sure you're not getting too wrapped up in these people's problems. Never forget, they're just your clients. And for your own mental health, right, you've, you've got to stay distant. Not so in Christian ministry. Paul speaks of himself as a nursing mother caring for an infant. He speaks with the, the language of love here Christian ministry involves the entire investment of a person's self into the lives of the people that he is serving. This is what makes the Christian church such a precious thing, by the way. The the church is not a business, and it's certainly not a, a professional service. There are no transactions in the Christian church. There is only a a family knit together by a common faith in Jesus Christ. And it is a family built on love for each other and for God in Christ. Friends, when you come to a pastor or or another Christian leader with your problems, you're not coming to some detached professional. You're coming to someone who has been praying for you. And, and someone who, who cares deeply for you and wants more than anything else just to see you growing up in Christ-likeness. And depending on your ages and how long you've been in, in your church, when you come to someone like a pastor for help, you might even be coming to someone who was there the day that you were born, right in the hospital room to welcome you into the world. And it was someone who who watched you grow out of the nursery and then into the children's classes and then grow up into the youth group and finally to reach adulthood. This could be someone who performed your wedding for you and maybe someone who was there in the hospital room to pray with you just before your surgery, just to bring some comfort to you in that anxious time. Someone who stands outside the auditorium every Sunday morning, anticipating your arrival. That's who you're talking to when you talk to a Christian minister. There's no distance between the the pastor and the membership, or in Paul's case, the, the apostle and the church of Colossae. That's not how Christian ministry works. It is a deep, personal relationship of one leader to the people that have chosen to embrace his leadership. You know, the longer the minister is 
among his people, the deeper that love grows. I've been here at Grace for more than 11 years now. I can't believe that it's been that long. It feels like it's gone in the just blink of an eye. But you know, after 11 years of ministry, I love this church more than I ever have. This is my favorite place to be. You know, even when I have a vacation week, even the weeks when I ask Pastor Scott to preach in my place, I still come here for worship. Why? Because this is the church family that I want to be a part of. I don't want to go among strangers. I want to be here with you. I want to hear your voices raised in song. I want to join you in prayer. I want to share snacks with you in Grace Cafe and then learn together with you during the growth groups hour. You see, the church is a family. It's a family of people that deeply love one another. And the ministry of a pastor, or in Paul's day, of an apostle, it's a, it's a labor of love. Meaning, exhausting, yes, but would you trade it for anything? No, because you love your family too much. It's a deeply personal love, but it's also, we'll notice here, an expansive love which means a love that isn't just for the immediate local church that the minister is involved with or for the membership. It's not just a love for their own church, but a love that extends out to all true committed disciples of Christ, wherever they may be found. Remember who the Apostle Paul is writing to in this book. He's writing to the church of Colossae. Now, Paul did not establish the church of Colossae, remember? This church was established by a man named Epaphras. The way it happened is that Epaphras lived in Colossae, but for some reason he traveled to Ephesus, a nearby city. While while he was in Ephesus, he heard the apostle Paul preaching the gospel, and Epaphras believed in Christ through Paul's preaching. Well, Epaphras then went back to his hometown of Colossae, began sharing the gospel himself, and more people became Christians. And then they formed a a little church together. Epaphras became the pastor, they formed the congregation, and then the church continued to grow. The apostle Paul didn't know anybody in the church of Colossae, except maybe Epaphras himself. He'd never been through that church. He, He wouldn't be able to recognize any of these members if he saw them on the street. All Paul knew is that this was a local church filled with believers in Christ, and they were trying to live in faithfulness to his word. For Paul, that's all that mattered. They were part of his family too. See, Paul wasn't just just anxious for the churches that he had personally established. But he was anxious for all the true churches of Christ. He loved them all. He saw them all as part of a single spiritual family. Look who else Paul had concern for here. Verse 1 says, also for those at Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was a city very close to Colossae. There was a church in Laodicea, and Paul had not established that one either. Most likely, that one was also established by Epaphras. It was, again, a neighboring town to Colossae. Epaphras probably started the church there, and then he went to the neighboring town and established another church there. So another group of people that Paul did not know. But Paul says he's writing to them, and he loves them too. 
And then Paul goes one step further at the end of the verse. He says, and for all who have not seen me face to face. So, Paul was aware of the church in Colossae, which he had not started, and the church in Laodicea, which he had not started. He was also aware that there was a whole host of other local churches scattered all over the Roman Empire that he had not established. See, friends, in these early days of the church, there were 12 apostles, and they were planting churches like crazy around the Roman Empire, but they weren't the only ones. I mean, there was a veritable army of pastors and missionaries going out to all of the recesses of the empire, establishing churches wherever they went, and eventually even breaking beyond the borders of the empire, going into the Far East, going down into sub-Saharan Africa. They were going everywhere. And Paul knew about these, these other churches being multiplied. He might not have known who started them, Um, who composed these congregations, but he knew they were there. He knew they were true churches of Christ. And so for Paul, they were a matter of tremendous concern for him. And he says at the beginning of the verse, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you whom I haven't met and for the Laodiceans whom I haven't met and for all of these churches whom I haven't met. Paul was laboring, enduring persecutions and being exhausted and getting writer's cramp, composing most of the New Testament, all because of his love for these churches. Now, friends, there's a a term to describe this kind of expansive love for the church, which we don't really use that much these days. The term is called having Catholicity. Not in the the sense of of the Roman Catholic Church, but Catholicity in the sense of having an an expansive, a a universal love for the church of Christ. Having a, a Catholic spirit means that you understand true biblical Christianity extends far beyond your your one local congregation and even beyond your immediate fellowship of local churches. It's to realize that Christ is calling a people from every tribe and nation the world over and that they are gathering together. And though they may not dot every I and cross every T exactly the same way, yet if they know Christ in repentance and faith, if they are seeking to live in faithfulness to his word, they are part of the family. It should be part of our love To have a Catholic spirit is also to recognize that you have an obligation to the global church of Christ. To the extent that your time and energy and resources allow, you should be giving yourself to the edification of all of the saints. Now, we must be careful here. We'd never want to fall into the error of ecumenism which is extending Christian fellowship to a so-called church, which long ago abandoned the gospel of Christ. But neither do we want to fall into the error on the other side, which is sectarianism, thinking that your personal local church is the last faithful holdout in the world, or thinking that your, your own immediate fellowship is the last there is. 
No, we must have a, a love for the church of Christ that is deep and personal, and it is particularly directed to our local context, but also a, a love for the church of Christ the world over and desiring to labor for the church's good. Now, how specifically do we manifest a Catholic spirit today? Well, I think the uh, Puritan minister, Matthew Henry, had some good thoughts. He said, quote, we can think about them and pray for them and be concerned for them. And even those that we never saw in the flesh, we may look forward to seeing in heaven. This is how we can demonstrate Catholic spirit. But then I would also add these things. We can also send people from our midst over to them to edify the churches. I, I love the fact that, that this is a sending church for a missionary in the pastoral enrichment program, which is a program that sends educated pastors from the states overseas to educate pastors who haven't had that opportunity in third world countries. That's how we demonstrate a Catholic spirit. There are thousands and thousands of pastors around the world, especially in the third world, where they are trying their dead level best to be faithful to Christ in their context, but they struggle to know how to conduct the ministry or, or exactly how to teach and preach because they never had that education. They love Christ, but they lack the knowledge of His Word. So even though we don't know their names or faces, sometimes we can't even pronounce the cities where they minister, yet we still send our guy, right? We send our guy to go over there to equip them for the ministry. That's having a Catholic spirit with regard to the church. We can also give of our financial resources to missionaries because our bodies are limited, right? We can only be in one place at a time but we can send money to others to go in our place to minister to the global church. And of course, if the Lord has given us this gift, we can also write. How did the Apostle Paul minister to Christians that he had never met personally? Well, he did it by writing his letters, now inspired scripture. Well, in the same way, we can minister to a larger group of saints by publishing works for their edification. Again, I, am, I just have one body, right? I can only be one place at a time. But you know what I love about publishing is that my, my thoughts, which I trust are biblical, <laughs> my thoughts can be put in print and put in electronic form and circle the globe on my behalf. So that even though I can only be in one place at a time, the, the, the biblical encouragement that I can offer can go everywhere through writing. So these are the ways that we can serve the global church. My friends, the, the last point that Paul wants to make, I, sh I should say one of the final two points that Paul wants to make here about the Christian ministry is that it is a labor of love for the people in your immediate context, but also for all the church of Christ. Now, much more quickly, we'll look at Paul's Second point, the final thing he wants to say about the ministry. We see this in verses 2 through 5. He also sees the ministry as aiming for the good of God's people. 
aims for the good of God's people. And this is what true love does, right? That's why these two are connected to each other. If you truly love someone, you're going to want what is best for them, and you're also going to to take action to try to secure the best for them. Even if you have to make sacrifices yourself. A loving parent would sacrifice everything, even their own lives, for the well-being of their children. In the same way, a faithful minister is willing to put everything out there for the sake of Christ's church. He's not going to work to give them uh, health and prosperity and things like this. He understands that sometimes God calls us to go through times of health challenge. Sometimes he allows us to experience economic hardships, and God uses these things to grow us in our relationship to him. The minister trusts God to take care of those needs for his people. What the minister is particularly focusing his efforts on, then, is on spiritual targets. Now, the grammar of verses 2 through 5 is very complicated, okay? Um, This grammar and syntax of it. A lot of debate about how this uh, set of verses ought to be parsed out. I'll just give you what I see here. What I see are, are... Four distinct targets that the Christian minister is aiming at. Number one, you see it in verse two, he's aiming for the encouragement of Christians' hearts. He's aiming for the encouragement of Christians' hearts. He says, I want you to know, verse one, I want you to know what great a struggle I have for you and for everybody else. Verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged. Encouragement was one of the goals of Paul's ministry. The word translated encouraged here could also be translated comforted or even cheered up. So remember, the church of Colossae was in a a lot of turmoil. This was a fledgling little church in in a pagan environment, and they had people coming at them from all sides with all of these new doctrines and new philosophies, even new worship practices. They were saying to the church in Colossae, look, you cannot be sure you have a right relationship with God until you've adopted all of our stuff on top of having Christ. They were in a lot of turmoil over that. They weren't well-grounded enough to know that these were lies. And so Paul says one of the reasons he was writing was to lift their hearts up again They're despondent. They're they're in doubt now. Paul says, I am laboring for you. I want you to know it. I want you to know I am laboring for you so that this knowledge might lift up your hearts. See, Paul was convinced that, that even just the act of letting them know that they had an apostle of Christ on their side and that he was enduring all things for their sakes that that would give them a new, a new comfort which they had lacked. And indeed, friends, isn't it a joy to know that you are not alone in this world? It can feel like we're alone at times, right? Um, you watch the news, it feels like the entire world is against you, almost as if there's a conspiracy to undermine all that you hold dear as a Christian. But isn't it a joy to know that what feels true sometimes is not 
what's objectively true. You, there are millions and millions, hundreds of millions of true believers the world over. And there are people praying for this church and, and offering labors of love for the uplift of this church and for the other churches of Christ. What a comfort to know that they are, that they are there. It's a great commit, comfort to have your own Christian commitments affirmed by another. Here, the church in Colossae was being affirmed by an apostle, the greatest authority the church had. Today, we too are affirmed by the apostles to the extent that we look at our ministry as a church and we compare it to what they taught and we see that we are aligned with their words. And so ministry seeks to encourage hearts by letting them know they're not alone, reminding them that they are backed by Christ, by his apostles, by all the faithful. Secondly, Christian ministry aims to cultivate church unity. Here's how Paul words it in this text. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, Again, the way that's translated, it might sound like a subordinate clause to the previous, but I think it stands on its own as a second aim of ministry. It aims to cultivate church unity, to knit people together in love. Just as a quilt is a single item that is made up of many parts, and those parts became one because they were knit together with thread in the same way the church is one entity. It's called the body of Christ. But it's made up of many different members. And we members are stitched to each other to make one tapestry. And what is, what is it that stitches together the members of Christ's church? Well, it's love. Paul says he's working that they would be knit together in love. Love is the highest of all Christian virtues. And it is the secret to church unity. You know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have no love, I am nothing. In the Christian church, it all rests on the foundation of faith and love for Christ and then a mutual love between members. What is it about love that holds a church together? Well, Paul says, again, 1 Corinthians 13, Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Friends, when the church of Christ is filled with people living like that, then you have a church that is strong in unity. And when a church is unified, the Lord of the church, Christ, is glorified, and the work of the church can continue. You know, the fastest way to split a church apart is to allow the love between the members to grow cold. That'll tear a church apart faster than anything. You know, Paul could see a gathering storm in the church in Colossae. All these false teachers purveying their ideas. Some Christians very tempted to adopt those ideas. Other Christians dead set against them. This is causing friction. Their love is, 
is being threatened, it might grow cold. So Paul says, listen, I am laboring for you because I love you. And one of the goals of my work on your behalf is to bring you back together. I want you to be united in love again. This is a responsibility of every single Christian, especially of Christian leaders, to exhibit love, to cultivate love between the people in the church family. Psalm 133, verse 1 says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And then the third aim of the gospel minister, he aims to cultivate the believer's confidence in Christ. Look at this uh, section here, end of verse 2, end of verse 3. It says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. What a mouthful of a statement that is. But it is a standalone goal of Paul's ministry. If I can summarize it quickly, Paul's saying this. Look, the question confronting every church in every age is this. Is Christ enough? That's always the question on the table. Is Christ enough? Is his wisdom enough for faith and godliness in this world? Was his sacrifice for sins enough to cancel the full record of debt against us? Is Christ enough or does Christ need to be supplemented? Does his atoning work have to be supplemented by our own good works before we can be justified? Does his wisdom need to be supplemented with the wisdom of the world before we can know how to conduct a godly life in this age? That's the question. A big part of a Christian leader's ministry is to answer the question, yes, he is enough. It's to encourage Christians to have full confidence in Christ. That's what Paul has been doing for much of the letter already. Remember chapter 1, verse 15? This glorious passage about the supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things made by him and for him. And he is the head of the body, the church, and then he personalized it, said, And you who were once alienated from God, yet he has now reconciled in his body. This whole letter has been saying, Christ is all sufficient for every need you have. Yes, Christ is enough. He is spiritually satisfying to all who embrace him. Notice Paul's words again in, in our text. He says his goal is that they would reach all the riches or the treasure of the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Uh, riches are, are something that you, that you deem precious. Well, Christ is a precious treasure to those who embrace him. He's all-sufficient for our pursuit of godliness. He provides us with all wisdom, Paul says. Christ is intellectually satisfying. With him comes knowledge. And he is all sufficient in everything. Notice the superlatives here just being piled one after the other. Christ is enough. 
There's nothing like having Christ, like having communion with Him. There's nothing like being united in mission with a local church, which is His body. There's nothing like knowing that your sins are forgiven and that you have a home with Him one day. And this is what Paul labored for. This is what all Christian ministers labor for. A big part of the job is just working to convince human souls that Christ is what they need and He is all that they need. And if they will embrace Him, they will find the all-satisfying treasure. That's Christian ministry. And to the extent that a church has all of these in their possession, um, being encouraged in heart, being knit together in love, being fully confident of what they have in Christ, to the extent they have that, they will be inoculated against false doctrines. That was the fourth and final aim of Paul's ministry. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Church was being hit with a lot of false doctrines and philosophies. They were fairly convincing to the uneducated. But those who knew Christ in personal faith, who were grounded in His doctrines, who were in love with His, His church, to those people, that teaching would have no appeal at all. So Paul is laboring to protect them from embracing false teachings. Together, all of these things make for a church that is in good order and in firmness of faith. That's the end of our text. He says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So to conclude now, my friends, what is the nature of Christian ministry? Well, from the entire passage which we've been considering over these last four Sundays, we can answer this. Christian ministry is loving the church and giving your life up for it just as Christ did. And may God fill his church with ministers who long to do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time you've given us. Thank you for constituting this church. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you. Help us to see your son as an all-sufficient gift for us. Lord, unite our church family together in love. Give us a, a spirit of Catholicity which extends out to all of the churches of Christ around the world, that they might be always in our thoughts and prayers, that in our, our writings and in our financial gifts and in our travels, we would be seeking their uplift. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from false doctrine as we come to see your Son as the all-sufficient treasure that he is. Lord, be blessed to raise up more leaders from this congregation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.